0: And if that horse has been shutting down and managing up until the point where the hat gets taken off, it's not really the hat. It's that it's been building up to that point.
1: Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere, a place where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. This land I live on is Waka Waka and terrible country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and to pay my respects to their ancestors, past, present and future. And I'd also like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. Today's episode, I am so excited to tell you, is brought to you by Eden River Equestrian. This, I can now tell you is the name of my new company that I have been creating for a very, very long time. Eden River Equestrian is a brand of horse and rider gear where all the edible and topical products are made from natural, organic and ethical ingredients. And the horse gear is made from recycled, organic or compostable materials. Eden River Equestrian will also be where you find this podcast and it will be the hub of creating a community of gentle and ethical, thus conscious, horse people. Eden River Equestrian will officially launch on Wednesday, May the 1st. That's four weeks from now. Initially, it will have all the topical and edible products for horses, and then in coming times, as we're in manufacturing as we speak, The equestrian gear will actually be launched a bit later, because that takes time, and you've got to do your due diligence when you're a manufacturer of sustainable products. But I'm so excited to be able to finally give you a date of the launch of my new brand, Eden River Equestrian. In this episode, I speak with Sarah Schlody from Equisoma. Sarah works in the field of trauma and somatic experience with both those who work in the field of equine assisted therapy and also horse owners where she can teach more about trauma, what it is and give you the tools to notice it yourself and find your way through for both you and your horse. You may remember in the last episode, I spoke with Anna Collis, who works to release trauma from horses herself. Well, in this episode, Sarah and I go deeper into what trauma is and how it can be released from the body using different methods and how you can become a real expert on your horse and their nervous system to assist you in building a deeper connection to your horse through understanding their nervous system needs. I love that there are so many people working with trauma now and that it's not some big scary word that sends us all into a spin. It happens and it happens to a lot of us and it happens to a lot of our horses too. And when we continue to talk openly about it, we can find ways through for both ourselves and our horses. So sit back, feel the love and support of this community around you and enjoy the amazing Sarah Schlody. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me, Tracy. It's a pleasure. Could you first tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? Sure. Um, So I I have a master's in counseling psychology uh, and I work as a registered psychotherapist in private practice in Canada. And I am also a somatic experiencing practitioner and have Uh, Completed a number of trainings on working with trauma treatment. My main uh, focus is working with humans in office um, Using a number of different trauma therapies Uh, And I also have a sideline where I offer uh, Equine assisted trauma recovery. So working with horses and humans together uh, As a therapeutic intervention for humans Uh, But what one of the things I've been really excited to promote a little bit more is um, couple things. One is that I call uh, trauma-informed horsemanship, which is bringing a trauma lens into the horse-human relationship uh, for horses and their owners uh, or horses and their riders and horses and their coaches and so on. Uh, And therapist-assisted horsemanship, which is the idea of pairing a therapist, a horse trainer, and a horse together to work through what's happening for the uh, the rider and the horse, or the coach rider and horse, because those dynamics can be a little fraught as well. So, um, so lots of really neat ideas. Um, I'm uh, sort of academically minded, but very body oriented. I have an odd mix of uh, being very intellectual, but also very somatic and very uh, physically oriented. And so, um, I try to bring that into my work as much as I can, whether I'm working with uh, people or I'm working with uh, working around horses. That's amazing. I Mm.
1: can see the world slowly changing as we don't go to uh, equine therapists just because we need therapy. We start understanding that trauma is really quite massive and not that um, huge to deal with if you know how to deal with it. And if we all just take a little bit of a look inside, we really can transform in an amazing way. So I love Mm. this. Did you grow up with horses? How, How did the horse part come into your life?
0: Oh gosh. So it's always so interesting. Um, one of the things I struggled with for years was imposter syndrome. And thankfully I've kind of kicked that. So woohoo. Well done. Uh, I'll get tips I, on yeah, how you do that later. <laughs> Still working on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, I, I came into horses as an adult, actually. Um, we grew up, oddly enough, I, I grew up in the countryside. We always lived in on rural properties and, um, you know, country roads, farm, farms all around. Uh, in fact, one of my first homes um, was on a, actually a small horse property. I only realized that after I became a grown-up. Uh, we had a fence across the backyard and there was a creek and a, a run-in shelter, which we used to pile wood in. <laughs> wow. And we didn't actually have horses. And I never, it never occurred to me that it was actually a small mini horse property um, you know and uh, and I, I discovered that when I was much older um, so I was sort of weirdly exposed to this idea of horses without really being exposed to this idea of horses from a very young age um, and I think like most kids who uh, grew up in the country but, but did not have animals you know we had dogs and cats and um, you know go on pony rides at the circus which I would never subject anyone to these days because you know we know about the ethics of that stuff but When you're a kid growing up in the '70s and '80s, you know you're you know you know don't always know what we don't know, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as a teenager, oddly enough, my best friend was hugely into horses. She was uh, she had been riding for years, and her and I would nerd out on a whole bunch of stuff. And so she got me really into the Black Stallion books by I think Walter Farley, and so I really started reading those voraciously and um, fell in love with that whole story and the different horses that they wrote about. And they wrote about like um, even Man o' War, who was a really famous racehorse, and I just loved those books. And she introduced me to the Man from Snowy River movies, which, of course, uh, are actually my all my all time favorite horse movies. Uh, and Mine too. I and probably yeah. everyone listening to. I wouldn't be surprised. And I just fell in love with those films. And uh, I'm so excited to be coming to Australia for the first time this year, because it is, it's just been a lifelong dream to go down and ride in the Victorian high country. So hopefully I'll have a chance to do that on this trip. Um, but the, so these movies really shaped my teenager years. And I loved Horses From Afar, and then went off to university and didn't wasn't really involved at all. Uh, And it was only when I went off to do my master's degree in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, on the west coast of Canada, that I really started to get interested again in this field of, um, you know, well, equine assisted therapy. Before that, I was interested in animal assisted therapy in general, because I had a rescue dog, and we would volunteer at nursing homes and so on. And when I went off to do my master's degree, I tried to um, tailor a lot of my coursework or assignments towards this idea of understanding animals in therapeutic settings and so on. And, and is that uh, just because you feel
1: like they did a lot for you, or is it
0: just because yeah. you see
1: them do it? What
0: was the, the real Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. I've always just loved animals. I think what really cued me into this whole idea of animals in therapeutic settings was, uh, oddly enough, I watched a documentary about a place in upstate New York called Green Chimneys Children's Center back in 2001. And I would say that was my first introduction to the idea that animals could be used in therapeutic settings. Uh, and I watched this documentary thinking, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I've always loved animals. I had, uh, some, in some ways, a rough childhood. Some things were difficult for me. Um, and my dogs and my animals and being outside in nature and going off on the trails and being a nature kid was just always that was just my resourcing. That was how I got through a lot of life stuff. Mm. Um, You know, and I was heavily into girl guides and sort of nerded out on doing badge work and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, so for me, it was always about the outdoors and animals and and so on. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah, but I watched this documentary and I was like, my gosh, like, I really love this idea. And so I made it One of the things that i find is so funny about being this super academic nerdy kind of person is that i i make it my business to know as much as i can about something i'm super passionate about Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: so i i I got to know about the field i I learned about all these different kinds of animal assisted interventions i had a directory website with like training programs worldwide like i kind of totally went all out and immersed myself And while I was on Vancouver Island getting to know people in the field, I reached out to um, a woman, in fact, I might have even met her at a horse show, and um, her name was Michelle Atterby, and she has a place called Spirit Gate Farms on Vancouver Island, and uh, she invited me to go to an equine-assisted or an equine-facilitated experiential learning workshop way back in 2007, actually and i went for this two day two and a half day workshop and was hooked and it was this i had zero horse experience at the time uh and i went there feeling totally like a fraud even though you're there as a client like everyone else there had horse experience and i did not i was this odd man out so to speak and but i loved it i absolutely loved it and it was such a life-changing experience for me uh, and it was interesting because during that master's degree, I was doing my master's in counseling psychology uh, while I was at West, and I was introduced to somatic experiencing the very same year I was introduced to the Aquine assisted therapy.
1: Mm, and really I cool. was hand in hand.
0: They did. So for Tell me, 2007. Yeah. Anyone
1: who doesn't understand what somatic experiencing is, could you explain that?
0: Sure. Uh, So somatic experiencing is a trauma therapy developed by uh, Dr. Peter Levine. It came about in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, and it's really based on a mammalian understanding of the nervous system and how mammals under, you know, natural conditions uh, don't really walk around with PTSD, right? Animals in the wild are routinely threatened, um but don't necessarily wind up with trauma now we know animals in the wild can and do experience trauma especially at the hands of humans uh you know humans were kind of known for wrecking things a lot of the time you see all this environmental stuff and you know all these things and it's usually us causing that but i mean us aside animals in the wild are routinely threatened they go into fight or flight or freeze responses if they lived as, you know, tell the tale, they come out of their freeze, they thaw out of the freeze response, they have a lot of that tremoring and shaking and releasing, and they come back down to homeostasis or balance, and they're okay. And humans and captive animals don't have that experience a lot of the time, unfortunately. So Peter will talk about the idea of a You know, animals in captivity are often caged. They're not able to, you know, do those fight or flight responses. They're not able to come out of freeze. They're experiencing chronic traumatization. Uh, So you think about animals in the entertainment industry, animals in labs, animals in um, food production and so on, right? Where they're often in small containers and they're not able to get out or they're punished, you know, their their responses are misunderstood and they're punished. And mm-hmm. so, or you think of horses that are stalled all day long, you know, and that have these big That's where my risk. mind went to, yeah. yeah. It's not just totally.
1: circuses and things like that. It's, right. It can be everyday people who love their animals sure. and don't understand them and totally put them in a box all day. And then when they come out and need an energy release, they're uh, they're punished for that.
0: Yes. I was hearing, I was talking with somebody today who was telling me about uh, someone that they knew whose dog was in a crate 12 hours a day. And I'm like, that's animal abuse. Like we, you know, that's not okay. Yeah. And the dog would come out and be massively aggressive. And I'm like, that dog is like in a, in, you know, it's, it's having to shut down. It's not able to, you know, those five freedoms that we think about in terms of animal welfare. Right. And the ability to move and have freedom and forage and friends and you know, all these things that, you know, this dog doesn't have that, you know, and mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, the dog comes out and it's wildly aggressive and reacting. And I go, well, you know, I would be too, frankly, if I was in a crate 12 hours a day, yeah. you know, but you know, the animals are not understood. You know, people, you know, have really, um, unfortunately do their own experiences. You know, if we have trauma, we were parented in a particular way, if we were abused for our own reactions. And so again, this idea of cages, right. Captivity conditions, Lend themselves to traumatization mm. um, and so not just with animals but with humans, human animals, so to speak we have we 're not necessarily captive per se, as in we 're not in stalls we 're not in crates we 're not you know Uh, in feedlots, but we do live in a social cage, most of us, right? We we experience shame, we're punished, we're ostracized, we're made fun of, you know, we're taught that certain reactions are signs of weakness, we judge, you know, aggression as being bad, you know, I don't want to be like my abusive father, you know, and so on. And so we shut down those responses, and we end up not being able to complete what's locked in the nervous system. So we sort of stay in these freeze responses because we're and, it, and there's a weird dilemma we're afraid of going into freeze but we're afraid of coming out of freeze because of what we'll tap into
1: right? Yeah. if we,
0: right and so we so we see trauma we see trauma everywhere and so peter levine's work is really working with helping sort of work through or renegotiate as he will say these trauma responses that are held in the body as a result of a various shock traumas and developmental traumas that we have in relationship uh and that's and i was like wow i was exposed to this back in 2007 and then did my training in somatic experiencing and then got trained in oodles of other trauma therapies as well mm. but i kept coming back to somatic experiencing because i was like you know you know that that's it's so important and it's also not being applied to the animals which was always so weird for me because it's based on mammalian models of neuroscience so we take these mammalian models Develop human trauma therapies based on those models, but then don't apply it to the animals themselves. Yeah. Which is strange for me. So, I've that kind of, you know, was part of my origin story was gosh, seeing this discrepancy and going, you know, we really should take this back around um, and bring this, you know, this lens to not just working with humans, but working with other animals as well.
1: And what was it like when you attended that first clinic with the equine assisted therapy?
0: Oh gosh. It was so all that imposter syndrome was huge and it was it was fascinating because I was just doing my master's degree. It was, I think I was in like um working into my year two I think it was actually like actually no I was ending year one of my master's degree and I uh, had been having a hard time with my practicum I had a practicum supervisor who um, would get triggered into her own stuff and I would get defensive because um, their stuff would get triggered and I felt like I was having to manage their stuff and it wasn't a safe place for me Mm -hmm. and so I was I was trying to find my fit and I went to this workshop and something switched for me. Um, I've always struggled with nervous system dysregulation. Um, what that means is basically, um, I tend to run fast and quick. (laughs) Um, my, uh, I'm a speedy individual and I've always been told, you know, Sarah, slow down, Sarah, you know, talk so fast and it's really hard not to Um, in part that's due to early experiences that have sort of shaped my nervous system. And in part, that's also just my brain wiring and firing and at a particular speed, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I've always had this fastness and being with the horses at that workshop, it was like, Oh, there's something different here. Um, I can process from the bottom up it was very much a bodily experience which again coincided with my first introductions to somatic experiencing as a body-based therapy approach and so uh, and one of the pieces that I found so potent for me during that original workshop was again this whole imposter syndrome around horses so I go into the round pen uh, or the I don't know what you guys call them down in Australia um yeah okay Sometimes they're round corrals or round yards, depending on. Yeah, round on, you know, yard, way. round pen. We, we, yeah, yeah, We can figure it out. Cool. Yeah, we don't say yard here, but uh, I've learned from having colleagues around the world that that's a common term as well. So, um, So we're in this round pen and uh, I was interacting with a horse named Hawk, and it was one of those what you call reflective round pen session, right, or a reflective session with a horse where you go into a round pen, the facilitator either comes with you or doesn't come with you, uh, and in this case, I asked the facilitator to come with me, and it was my first time being in front of a group of horse people and feeling completely at a loss for what to do, and one of my strengths but also one of my defense mechanisms is hiding behind my intelligence you know knowing stuff is a safe place for me
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know and uh and so I've protected myself over the years by making sure I know a lot of things about a lot of things and that way I can't be proven wrong you know because I, I I protect myself around being proven wrong a lot and a lot of my early stories have to do with that so that's a, a protective mechanism for me and so I'm standing in this round pen and it stops I'm, you
1: from feeling as well doesn't it
0: oh gosh yeah then you don't have to feel you're disconnected yeah. you're when just you're talking a,
1: about it you keep it in your head and you don't have to deal with it anywhere else
0: oh yeah totally i can disconnect it's a way it's like a form of dissociation right mm-hmm. this intellectualizing thing is like oh i can't there's no solutions here i'm just going to learn to psychoanalyze everyone and everything and it keeps me safe because i can predict what's about to happen and i don't have to feel stuff so bonus right yes yeah so um, so I'm in this round pen with this horse named Hawk. And that's a whole other story. Hawks have become a bit of a, um, a medicine animal for me over the years. But that's a whole other dialogue in and of itself. But I'm with this horse named Hawk in this round pen. And I'm feeling a massive amount of anxiety and panic because uh, I didn't know what to do. And I remember the facilitator telling me "But you don't have to do anything. And it just blew my mind. And I erupted into tears and I, all my defenses were completely laid bare because I was like, oh, I'm so used to doing things. This is how I manage. And I couldn't manage that way anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, and then I was like crying and, uh, and I forget how we came onto the topic of imposter syndrome, but um, she was like, um, how would it be if you went and made eye contact with the other participants in the workshop? And knowing what I know now, that would have, that's a really big ask. And that's really way above threshold. Like I, you know, knowing what I know now about somatic experiencing, I would have done what we call titration. I would have titrated that down. I would have made that a lot smaller of an ask. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you imagine making eye contact, what happens in your body and, you know, yeah. tracking that first, right? Um, but I, you know, that wasn't the workshop. And so she said, you know, how would it be like if you made eye contact? And I didn't feel like I could say no. Um, and so I, but I was a snotty mess. <laughs> I was crying and, uh, and I said, well, okay. I didn't feel like I could say no. And that was my stuff. But I said, you know what? I'm going to take my glasses off and I'll do it. with My glasses off that way I'll do it, but it's less intense because I'm blurry, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so I walk over to the edge of the round pen and I make eye contact as best I can with my blurry vision, looking at each person in their face as I walk along the side of the round pen and I'm in massive amounts of shame, massive amounts of embarrassment, hugely vulnerable moment for me, looking at all these horse people going, I haven't a a clue what I'm doing here. Um, And the facilitator said, Sarah, look behind you. And unbeknownst to me, Hawk had chosen to follow me at Liberty. And he had his nose at the small of my back and he had my back as I walked from person to person. Wow. And I was like, okay, I think there is something to this. And I was, like I said, I was hooked from that point onward. Wow. So where did that take you next? Well, um, I eventually moved from British Columbia. Well, I did my master's degree, finished my master's degree, uh, did my master's thesis research on the field of equine-assisted therapy in Canada, um, got to know pretty much the who's who of the field, and uh, eventually moved back to um, Ontario for work. And um, while I was in Ontario, oddly enough, I was like, you know, I I need to do this thing. I need to get somatic experiencing training, and I need to get equine-assisted therapy training. And the great irony was uh, that all those things were mostly in BC. There was no, you know, there was no somatic experiencing training in Ontario at that time. Mm. Um, and uh, the equine assisted therapy training I wanted to take happened to be in Nanaimo, BC, an hour from where I formerly used to live. And I had all these excuses. i was like, no, I can't do it. It's too far away. And I have to fly out there. And, uh, and I was like, you know what? Dang it. I'm going to do this. And so I, we managed to get a somatic experiencing cohort running in Ontario. And that very same year I started some um, equine assisted therapy training with Deborah Marshall at Generation Farms in Nanaimo, BC. And, uh, and so I continued my love affair with British Columbia horses and SE in spite of living all the way across the country and nothing could stop me at that point. And ever since then, everything's been intertwined for me from that point onward. Yeah. And how were you then able to tie
1: the somatic experience into the horse world? Because there's one thing working in equine therapy, but then how do you work with an everyday horse and rider? Is that what you transitioned to or did you stay more
0: in the therapy field? I, am I, So my bread and butter is still primarily the therapy field. Most of the days I am in my office doing trauma work in office with clients mm-hmm. um, because human that's just clients, yes. human clients. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would love That'd be funny to have a horse in my actual office. <laughs> uh, you know, here, come have a seat. Just so we're um, clear, it's not
1: dogs. When I used to tell people all yeah. those years ago that I did equine therapy, everyone said, So you sit and counsel a horse. It's like, oh, okay, okay.
0: (laughs) Well, that's why we're not supposed to say equine therapy. Like we're not supposed to say pet therapy, right? Yeah. Um, Because it assumes that it's the animal receiving the therapy. And in fact, the word equine therapy refers to equine body work. So massage for horses. Yes. This was back in the early 2000s
1: as well before we'd established all these words.
0: Oh yeah. And people still shortcut it because it, frankly, I'm sorry, but it's way less hard on my mouth to say equine therapy, even yeah. though I know that grammatically it's not correct. And that yeah. we should be saying equine assisted, equine facilitated, equine guided, enter the word of your choosing therapy, counseling, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I know that, but it's way easier in terms of ease of communication to just say equine therapy, even though it's not quite accurate. So, mm. yeah. So anyway, so, um, Most of my work is in office. I do a number of different trauma therapies, somatic experiencing being one of them. Um, I did a number of um, post-grad trainings in working with touch in psychotherapy. I have a treatment table in my office where I do a lot of trauma release work with people uh, working with the nervous system, working with attachment. Um, I've done a number of trainings on working with fragmented personalities. So working with the parts of the personality and complex dissociation, um, working with EMDR, which is another form of trauma therapy, uh, and, and a number of other things as well. So um, most of my work is in office, but one thing that always kept coming back to me was my relationship with horses and, um, we have our own two horses. We board them at a facility about 10 minutes from our home. And I was finding that, you know, a life, uh, not a life coach, a business coach once told me, Sarah, make your mess your message. <laughs> and... Um, Yeah. Right. And so I loved that. And I, so over the years with my horse Brando, Brando is a paint Percheron cross. He's a lovely goofy boy. Um, but in some ways, very much like his mother, he's stubborn at times. And when he doesn't want to do something, he doesn't want to do it. (laughs) Um, and, um, and we've grown a lot. I've had him since he was a yearling, And he's almost nine now, I would say. I think he turns nine this year. Um, And he has taught me so much. And it was through my relationship with him that I started to recognize that I kind of needed to practice what I preached. I needed to actually apply what I was learning and doing in somatic experiencing with humans to our relationship with me and him together. And I, in my attempt at getting... Help for him. I was not a horse trainer, so I would always hire people to help me with, you know, starting him and doing work with him on the ground and so on. Um, In my best attempt to try to make sure that he had a good experience, inadvertently um, he wound wound up having some pretty bad experiences uh, with some of the people that I had hired to help him. Um, And as a result of that, he became very fearful of objects. And it took me a while to figure out why my horse, who formerly used to be not afraid of anything, um, he was a very confident, very nonchalant, blase, yada, yada, you know, youngster, um, to all of a sudden, seemingly overnight, becoming terrified of objects. And it was the weirdest transition. I mean, I didn't understand it. I thought for the longest time, perhaps a border went after him with an object on a day that we weren't there. But it didn't seem to make sense. And it occurred to me, took me a little while. Sarah was a little it was a little dense at the time. It's always
1: hard when it's your own. Oh
0: yeah. It's always it was. harder
1: when it's your own.
0: Yeah, I didn't see it. And it was right in front of me. And I'm, here I am, the trauma therapist extraordinaire, going to conferences, speaking, teaching, you know, and it's right in front of my own nose. And I didn't see it with my own horse, that my horse had experienced some training methods with people that had flooded him out. And that the methods were too fast, too quick, too overwhelming. And he learned to develop a fear. Um, and he developed uh, anticipation anxiety of new objects and things happening suddenly suddenly on him. And because he's part draft, his brain thinks a little bit slower. And so we had somebody who, you know, probably I don't know if this person had experience working with draft crosses, but um, I learned later that you know he's a horse who needs a bit more time to think. And he was unfortunately exposed to some methods that. Um, Didn't have a lot of patience for him needing time to think they would view that as him not being responsive or him being obstinate. And in reality, he's just a slow processor. He's not stupid by any means, but he's, he's part draft, right? Mm So, you know, so he's got a particular way about him and that was not understood. And so suddenly it became clear to me that I had a horse who was experiencing, um, a certain amount of, um, defeat, a certain amount of, um, fear, a certain amount of anxiety, um, some negative associations. Uh, and it took a couple of times, um, my spouse getting thrown from the saddle off of Brando because sudden movements would freak him out that I kind of went, I've got to figure this out, you know? And I was like, Sarah, you've got to figure this out. What is going on? Um, and I finally figured it out. I, I realized what was going on and I was like, Oh, and unfortunately, and here's where you make your, mess your message. Um, because I have a career where I care for people all day long because I, um, I'm a therapist. And as you know, being a counselor, vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue are a big part of our world. Massively so. Huge. And I had been going through a fair amount of compassion fatigue and some vicarious trauma. In fact, some direct trauma. Uh, especially in regards to an, a long standing situation where I was the victim of criminal harassment from a very unstable person, um, which really had a huge did a huge number on me and uh, so that by the time I would get home at the end of the day, I was much more irritable, much more impatient, you know and it didn't matter how much therapy I'd done, you know you get to the point where you're exhausted. Mm. and I didn't have a lot of patience for Brando, and I would get frustrated with him. And I know the first rule of horsemanship is not to be emotional with your horse because it's not going to help. And and I get that. And I'm the poster child for preaching co-regulation and, you know, regulate yourself so your horses can regulate off of you. And, you know, and here I oh, am. You have to learn it first. Oh, God. <laughs> Experience yeah. it first to be able to truly understand it. Yes. And so it was when I started to realize, okay, sir, you got to practice what you're preaching here. I gave myself a lot of compassion because it wasn't for lack of knowing. It was just that I was that drained. And I I spend all day offering therapy to people and putting in long hours and doing good work that by the end of the day, my self-care, I don't want to have to go to the farm and therapy my horse, you know. I I want, I want a horse who's ready to go and that we can have fun and play and not be afraid of objects all the time. And so it was feeling like work. And so I was understandably frustrated and tired. Um, but I had to get over that because Brando needed me to get over that. And so I did. Um, thankfully some of the other situations in my life started to resolve some of the longstanding harassment started to, you know, get addressed through the, the court system and, um, and that started to clear up, um, and I'd started to free up more of my energy. And I'll, I'll, never remember, I'll never forget it. There was a day I knew we had turned a corner when I was so much more regulated. We were able to spend much more connected time together. All the stuff I'd been saying for years, I was able to start to embody because I was no longer depleted. And suddenly, for the first time in all the years I owned Brando, he dropped and rolled next to me. Oh. And I was like, thank you, buddy. (laughs) Thanks for being so patient with your mom. Um, And so that's sort of where I got into this idea of, okay, um, there's some really great knowledge from the field of trauma work, attachment, co-regulation, somatic experiencing, polyvagal theory that I think horse owners should know. I think horse trainers should know. Um, I think equestrians should know. Um, And I see all these issues between people and their horses myself being one of them. And it was only when I started to apply some of that knowledge to helping Brando with his fear of objects that I started to actually see some progress with him. And I was like, okay, so this is a case study of one. I can't claim that I, you know, I can heal horse trauma, but I'm like, there's got to be something to this because if it's a mammalian model developed for human trauma therapy, there has to be applicability back with other species. There has to be um, and so that's what I've been trying to figure out. And so I'm still at this very beginning of trying to formulate what that is. Uh, and actually, you'll, you'll be really excited to know uh, I've been working with a woman in Australia named Julie Lannon, who is a clicker trainer, and we've just developed a video series that we will be releasing shortly on taking some training sessions that she has with her and her horse and his fear of objects uh, and applying a lens of somatic experiencing trauma attachment and polyvagal theory to what's actually happening with the horse as he works through his sphere oh that's brilliant yeah and so i'm so excited about that uh because this is literally no one's done that like no one has actually done that yet so um there are people certainly who are trained in somatic experiencing who do work with humans and horses uh and some who work with horses but no one to my knowledge has taken training a training session video and try to unpack it from that lens. So oh, that's it's, it's
1: so helpful to have that visual cool. as you're listening to it as well. You can really mm-hmm. dive deeper into it and understand then also yeah. how mm-hmm. you can apply it to your own training sessions. That's amazing. That's it.
0: Yeah. So it was really helpful. So all this came back to me having to do my own work. My progress with Brando would not be where it is today. Does he still have problems? Sure he does. You know, we're working through stuff but we're way further ahead because i had to walk my talk i had to look after myself go back to therapy continue doing my self regulation work continue to work on trauma in my body continue to look at my attachment patterns and my, my how i how i have emotional responses to things how my past shapes those responses right and and there's no shame in that like that is the horse human relationship as my colleagues um, but Tina Schultz-Job and Tim Job will say, it's a real relationship. The horse isn't a metaphor. The horse isn't a mirror. The, the horse is an actual being that you have a relationship with. Though, there are actual honest-to-goodness dynamics playing out there. Yeah. And, you know, and we have to treat it like any other relationship. And that means a horse trainer, a good horse trainer, in my view, is kind of like a couples therapist or a family therapist, right? They're working on the interdynamics between the human and the horse. It's not just about technique right there the, the you know
1: what i mean like and so smiling at the at the at the d- fact that we're talking about this because i've always mm. believed that when people used to say to me way back in the early days you know i'm having this issue with my horse can you come yeah. there? and i said i can tell you right now i'm not a horse trainer i'm not going to pretend to be a horse trainer and i can't actually yeah. give you any tips on that however yeah. I can talk about the dynamic between the two of you and I can exactly. do relationship counseling there and I can give yeah. you on what's going on and the dynamic that's playing out. That's how I can help you. The other stuff yes. you have to get somebody else. I think it's so important and so overlooked. Yes. Because it's and that's not the, just about us, yeah. the horse taking on our stuff. It's about what we're carrying, but the interaction of that as well. With the personality and the relationship between the two of you, how the dynamics play. There's so much at play that we don't think about. It's just, I would like the horse to do this move. Why is the horse not doing this move? Horse, do this move. We're
0: not taking all the other things into account. Yeah. We did a... We did a a clinic a year ago um, between me and a a horsemanship instructor. And I, again, I don't purport to be a horse trainer. I certainly at some time I would like to become a horse behavior consultant, maybe down the road, you know. Um, but for right now, it's kind of like you said, right? I I can come in, I can look at the horse human relationship dynamic. I can let you know how you're pinging off of each other, right? We can talk about your dysregulation and how that contributes to the horse sense of unsafety, you know, and then how the horse's unsafe, you know, unsafety leads to certain behaviors. And can we look at that through a trauma lens? I'm all about that. Like that Mm -hmm. is, you know, hundred percent what I can do. But we did this neat clinic last year, um, where we brought people in with their horses, And they would have a horsemanship lesson. All of them ended up choosing to do in the saddle. Uh, I was hoping some people would want to do some groundwork, but everyone wanted to do riding. And we were looking at what was going on for the uh, participants uh, in their process with their horse. And, you know, invariably, you know, they're like, well, what's the issue with your horse? Well, I want the horse to do... Do this particular movement, or I want the horse to do this particular transition, or when I ask this or I cue this, it doesn't happen. What's going on? And invariably, it was a challenge with the human. Right? The human would have anxiety, or the human would dissociate, or the human would, you know, uh, be so caught up in their own activation that they were triggering the horse or they were so nervous on horseback that they would clench with their legs and the grip, the saddle and grip the sides of the horse. Like, you know, and that would, you know, cue a bit of a fear response in the animal because they were so gripped. It was like, you know, it was, um, uh, like a, a real, almost like having like claws on, on your on your back, you know, like mm-hmm. an animal gripping you, and and I go, well, you know, if I was a horse, a prey animal, and I had some animal on my back that was gripping me in a rather stressed out way, I would probably feel a little off too, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but it, we were looking at those pieces, and I, I think, um, I think I was telling you before we started recording today, uh, I'm taking a course right now. on working with fear in horses and uh interestingly i think i'm the only ther- I, I think i might be the only therapist in the group everyone there is a horse you know consultant of some kind or a horse trainer i believe i might be wrong on that but we were having this interesting conversation about you know how do you help uh humans and their horse work with horse uh, problem um horse problem behaviors and uh And I had said, well, you know, why are we like, can we work with the humans stuff that's coming up? Because that's a huge part of trying to sort out what's going on for the animals, figuring out what they call the antecedents. Like what are the, the the environmental conditions that are contributing to the issue, address those first and then look at other stuff. And I'm like, well, the human is a big part of that. And in this course, they're saying, you know, that's such a sensitive topic because when you're being brought in as a horse trainer, the human doesn't want to look at themselves invariably. They're, they're wanting to fix the problem, right? They want to get a horse on the trailer. They want to get the horse to stop biting they want the horse to stop pinning their ears when you saddle them. You know, they, they have all these, you know, I can't catch my horse. Why can't I catch my horse? And so they're wanting the, you know, the the trainer to come in and fix the horse issue. And, and I, you know, and I said, it's so unfortunate because it's kind of like human therapy, you know, often, a child will be brought to a therapist and the parent will say, fix my child, you know, Mm. and any good therapist will look at that situation and not work with the child. They'll work with the family. They'll work with the parents, right? Because Mm. usually a child is symptomatic of the family. The child is, you know, going to be, I hate the word mirror, but you know what I'm saying? But the child is what we call the identified patient. Well, the horse in this case is the identified patient right the humans pointing the finger at the horse and going my horse has all these problems what's wrong with my horse but in reality the horse is reacting often off of either past bad experiences or current bad experiences and and we're not always looking at that we're looking for those more instrumental solutions and it's such a i think i try to think about what are the reasons why you know why are people so reluctant to want to look at themselves and I think the biggest answer that I have to that question is probably shame the same shame that I had in that round pen with Hawk that prevented me from looking other people in the eye
1: yeah it's a you massive know? one and we perpetuated or yeah. every day sure. in society mm-hmm. in many many ways shame is a huge one
0: oh yeah oh yeah and and I think part of that shame too is uh, cognitive cogn- uh, cognitive dissonance I think is the expression Right, where you know we're presented with information and then that doesn't jive with what we believe about ourselves or what we believe about a horse, and that that dissonance between what we're presented with as information and what we believe is so uncomfortable that we dismiss the new information and hold tighter to our beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, which you know is sort of you know sometimes shame is a part of that process as well. And, um, and I, I it's so important though, like. If we're going to make any headway with our animals, we do have to look at ourselves as part of that equation um, because we, I have said this before in other um, avenues, we, got, we gaslight our animals. We project our stuff onto them. We have our own stuff that we're not looking at. The animal reacts off of us and then we blame the animal for their reaction And, and it's like, but that's not fair. Like the animal is just symptomatic sometimes, not always of us, but often responding just to what's going on for you and I. Mm. And it's really unfair to punish an animal when they're having a very reasonable reaction to mistreatment or confusion or fear or, you know, and so on and so forth. Right. And, And that's what we do in our human relationships too. You know, we see that in abusive, it's an abusive dynamic, right? The movie, The Gaslight, I think is what it was called, came out in the 1940s. And it was um, a husband who made his wife out to be crazy. He kept turning the lights, the gas lights in the house. He would change the intensity of the lighting. And whenever she would notice it, he would say, oh, no, they're not, they're not changing. They're fine. You know, you're the one who's seeing things. And he started to make her distrust her sense of reality and made her out to be crazy, even though she actually had a good reason to be reacting. Mm. Um, And it's a a really strong tactic used by abusers to control and manipulate and and so on. And I don't think that humans do it with horses with that same intention. Um, But at the same time, it has a very similar effect.
1: Yeah, we do it with ignorance it's completely yes, that's right. it's absolute yeah. love and you know yeah. joy with our horse and we just don't know any better <clears throat> yeah it's exactly the same with children the you know the yes. the damage we can and possibly do, do to our children all the time it's not from lack of love it's just a, a lack of awareness and um and an ignorance yeah. that we've lived most of our lives with so this is yeah. um we, as we talk about this it's not to um put anyone down and certainly not to feel that word shame and and anybody at all, it's to know that we all do it. I don't know that there's a human who hasn't probably done it in their lifetime. I'd like to meet them maybe the Dalai Lama. (laughs) And and we all do it and bring awareness to it and talking about it and just bringing it out in the open. We can not be anymore and we can start thinking about steps that we can make. And yeah. take, and I'd love to hear what you did with your own horse. So, when you started mm. to have that time, what was yeah. it that you actually did that was able to change <clears throat> your relationship and your horse's behavior?
0: Yeah, so this is going to require a little bit more of, um, excuse me, <clears throat> I'm getting over a bit of a chest cold, mm. so I apologize. Um, so this is going to require a bit more theory in terms of somatic experiencing and polyvagal theory. I don't know how long we have for this podcast. So perhaps you can enlighten me about um, how much longer we have so I can maybe tailor my response to the time we that we have. Got. As
1: long as you would like, we're a podcast. Okay. Is, okay. We're not limited to <laughs> times. So we're allowed to take sure. as long as we like. So as long as you've okay. got the time, we're
0: happy to listen and record great okay well then no problem I'm happy to continue um I I'm trying to laugh and when I laugh I sound like I have like a really bad um I don't know what it is I can't laugh properly right now so if I sound like I'm wheezing I actually I'm trying to I'm trying to enjoy some laughter but we'll see what I do um so (laughs) excuse me so with with Brando some of the things that I had started to do was actually just apply what I do with humans. Um, And that requires understanding a little bit about how somatic experiencing works. So, and also some attachment theory and some understanding of co-regulation and co-disregulation. And so when we first think about um, working with a traumatized human being or potentially an animal with trauma, um, I don't think it's all that different. Um, Stephen Porges, who created the polyvagal theory, will talk about how this safety is the treatment, to quote him from his t- 2017 book. Um, and there's a reason why you focus on safety first. Um, if the human or the horse in this case, if their nervous system is picking up on what we call a neuroception of danger or life threat, so danger, the neuroception of danger would be I'm not safe, And I'm gonna be enacting fight or flight type energy, Mm -hmm. right? You know, neuroception or perception of life threat would be I can't fight, I can't flee, I can't get away, nothing I do is helping, I'm gonna shut down, Mm -hmm. right? This is now we're in conservation, we're trying to survive. You know, this is our last-ditch effort to survive, which is to, you know, disconnect. Um, But when we're in a neuroception of danger, if a horse is not feeling safe, if a human is not feeling safe, it's gonna be really tough to grow, to learn, to develop to address things to feel safe in the world we to grow and learn and to heal we need to feel safe our nervous system has to come out of that fight-or-flight type energy into a more regulated state where it's like oh i'm not having to mount all this energy all the time Mm -hmm. i don't have to be on guard and that is that's tough enough to do in and of itself because often people have a lot of fear of coming out of that kind of response because it feels safer to feel on guard right? Mm -hmm. Than to let your guard down and feel vulnerable. So, um, so the first step is always, how do you facilitate safety? And that includes not just living in a safer environment. I mean, what is that anyway? But a lot of it is the relational safety, How are you in relationship with your client, for instance, if you're a therapist, right? How are you monitoring your own regulation or dysregulation, as it were? How are you monitoring your reactions, your attachment style? Does your attachment style tend to be more dismissive, tends to be more enabling? You know, do you tend to be really anxious about the relationship and therefore rescue a lot and prevent the client from feeling uncomfortable? Or do you tend to be more avoidant? You know, like what is your attachment style? Because that will affect your intervention. And the same thing happens with the horses as well. Do you tend to be, you know, really avoidant of, of connection? Uh, do you tend to be more disconnected? Do you tend to be more punitive and abusive? Do you tend to be more anxious and not wanting to do anything to harm the horse and therefore never set boundaries? Like what is your attachment pattern? Um, Cause that's going to affect whether you're working with a horse or with a human client. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll affect your intervention. Like I said, quote unquote. Um, and, and how you respond, how you attune is going to be really important. Noticing what we call in somatic experiencing tracking, or some people will call that micro tracking, is, is tracking and paying attention to some of the subtlety of noticing nervous system states, ner- noticing shifts in emotional response, noticing the slightest you know, clenching of the jaw. You know the slightest twitch of the finger there's all these little tiny micro indicators that give you a sense as to what's going on you're talking and the eyes flick to the left suddenly really really briefly and then they come back but the person looks like they're not here right when you're working with the horse when did they leave mentally when did they check out when did their eyes stop looking and when did the eye just go blank right are you noticing those little things Because when part of the safety is, if we're doing stuff, whatever the stuff is, if you're a therapist or you're working with a horse, whether it's your horse or a a horse you're training and so on, if you're missing those little subtle cues that a a human or a horse is going into a threshold that is beyond their current capacity, right? then we're just reenacting. right? Mm. We're reenacting familiar patterns of overwhelm and shutdown. Right. And and part of safety is this idea of I'm seen, getting gotten feeling felt, right? So to speak, to use that kind of language, right? Does the client know that you've seen them? Does Mm -hmm. the horse know that you saw the thing that just happened there? And then you backtrack and go, okay, that was a little too high. That was too high out of threshold. We're gonna scale that back and let's do that again, but we're gonna come in a little bit lower. Right. We you know, and if we're so the unfortunate part is is if you're working too far above threshold, that's going to induce flooding and and shutdown and helplessness and all these other kinds of things. But if you're working too low below threshold, then you got nothing to work with. And then that's, you know, nothing actually changes. And, and so you need to have enough juice, so to speak to work with, but not so far that it's beyond threshold. Working at the threshold is a really good place to be, but not beyond. Mm.
1: In, Where, um, in, my teacher who mm. in counseling, she often talks about this, not with horses, but with partnerships. She talks about Dan yes. Tatkin's work and she yes. says, Um, because this is about relationships as well and she says you must become an absolute master and expert on your partner's nervous system yes what does he she whomever what do they do you know study them really well when do they check out what's the thing that happened before they checked out yes exactly what is it what what happened in the lead up to that because yes that was a trigger for them there but Find them right at the back of the trigger and gently yeah. make them feel safe back there, and then that's you actually it. build, um, build something different yes. in the story and in the pattern and in the nervous system, and that's where things can change. So it's the same for us, you know, yeah. really becoming a master of our horse's nervous system and really starting not to notice those tiny, tiny
0: things because they're there, but yes. sometimes we're not present enough to see them. That's right. Mm. And we miss it and we miss it and we miss it and we miss it until we see it. And then it's like, oh gosh, how did I not see that? And then we get backed off and we're like, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and that's one of the things I learned that was so interesting about my horse, Brando. I did a consult with Anna Blake, who is a really lovely horse person um, who works with a lot of traumatized horses. And I consulted with her about Brando we love before I had her on this Oh, podcast. she's, we she's, love her. She's so lovely. Mm. And we had a great call and we talked about my horse and I said, you know, there's this thing that keeps happening, right? Where he's afraid of objects. And this is before I kind of had my epiphany around, okay, I need to just apply what I know to him um, and stop sort of second guessing myself. This is, you know, still Sarah in imposter syndrome going, Oh no, you can't take SE and apply it to horses. Mm -hmm. "Eh, Who do you think you are? (laughs) You know? And so I consulted with Anna Blake and, and we had a great dialogue and she said, think about it this way. I said, you know, one of the things that happens for Brando is, you know, my partner will get on him and the two times he was bucked off, Brando seemed to be doing fine. And then, you know, Ryan took off his cowboy hat and gave it to me so it didn't fall off while he was riding. And then Brando lost his mind, freaked out, saw the hat out of his peripheral vision, magically appear off of his head and jumped up in the air, jumped sideways and off goes my partner. mm mm-hmm. and- you know, and the other time it was the same kind of idea where, you know, Ryan wanted to adjust his leg in the stirrup. He pulls his leg out of the stirrup, moves his leg around to, you know, adjust his leg to feel more comfortable. Brando sees the leg moving in his peripheral vision, loses his mind, jumps three feet in the air, you know, and off comes my partner again. Mm. And I said to Anna, I said, you know, I don't really, he seemed to be doing fine. She said, bear in mind, Sarah, you have a draft cross. They're often very stoic you won't know until it's too late that he is having, he's actually having a really hard time. Mm. Um, and if that horse has been shutting down and managing up until the point where the hat gets taken off, it's not really the hat. It's that it's been building up to that point. Mm. And I was like, uh, huh. and then all of a sudden it was that conversation that went, okay, yes, you absolutely can apply somatic experiencing to horses. Because we do what we call management strategies, right we manage, we override we we become stoic we we do the thing, we muscle through and and Brando is a classic muscler. he will do what he what he needs to do to please his people. he loves his people, he will do what he needs to do, he'll go beyond his own threshold, and you know he's past his threshold, you'll know only when it's too late because it just takes the flick of the hat, and he goes bah." Yeah. You know, and so I was like, oh, yes, we do need to be tracking our horses' nervous systems. You have to catch the man, what we call in somatic experiencing, the management strategy. You have to catch the stoicism early. You've got to back it up and back it up and back it up. And what happened before that and before that and before that. And in somatic experience, we'll call that. Finding the pre-prodromal. So a prodromal is the thing that occurs before the thing.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: If you think about in medical terminology, right? Like the thing that happens before the symptom showed up, mm-hmm. um, like the precursor. So we're looking for the precursor to the precursor, right? Like yeah. we really want to back that up um, and start there. And so what I started to do is I was like, okay, and Anna had said, she said, you know, I know you want to find a trainer who can help you with this. And she said, It's probably gonna have to come from you. You're gonna have to figure this out. And I was like so inspired from that conversation, not that I, I don't need help. Like, you know, we all go, go get help. You know, we, we learn and we take courses and we hire people. But she said, you, you're going to have to do this learning with him. Um, it's going to have to come from you because it's part of your relationship with him. And I was like, ah, oh, I wanted that easy answer, which was find me a trainer who can help with this issue. I and know. no, no, it's going to have to come from you, Sarah. Okay. So we, I started applying what I know. I was like, Sarah, what do you know? What do you have that you can bring in Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to use what I know. And so I started tracking his nervous system much more closely than I was. And I was before, but I, I really was like, you know, that imposter syndrome makes you second guess what you know, so you don't apply it. And I stopped second guessing myself. So I started applying it with Brando and I was like, you know, I, in somatic experiencing, we work at small thresholds first. And one of the biggest things that Peter Levine talks about is this idea of pendulation So pendulation is um one complete pendulation will be one activation and deactivation of the nervous system. One rise up and one settling, right? So the nervous system mounts a response and then deactivates or you know releases or discharges or what have you down the backside, right? And and so one so completing a pendulation is where you're gonna start to see the window of tolerance grow. According to Dr. Levine. The issue isn't so much stress. The issue is that the nervous system doesn't reset. We have these experiences of stress and fear where we go up, we mobilize, we get stuck and freeze, and we never really come down the other side. And so it's kind of like life becomes a series of what we call stimulus stacking, right? So it's one stimulus and then you never really fully recover. And then there's another stimulus and you never fully recover. And then and there's where another does it one. Go? That's the question. And it, yeah, that's right. It gets locked in the body. Yeah. Right? It gets locked in the nervous system. So we go into a freeze and we manage and we're stoic and Brando is so stoic and he holds all this in his body and then it just takes a little, a little something and then it's like, poof, and you're like, Oh, there it is. It's under the surface. It's just there underneath that holding response. Mm. And so, um, so part of it is don't stimulus stack, (laughs) so to speak, allow the pendulations to complete, allow there to be a rise. And a fall and in somatic experiencing with human clients, a stimulus will be like, so when you think about that thing just that just happened, what are you noticing in your body? And you don't add any other stimuli. You wait until that tracks through, mm. right? Until that comes right back down before you test another stimulus, right? And that helps grow the window of tolerance for progressively larger wi- you know, um, amounts of charge. And that's how you start to eat away at and, and, and work through the trauma response Um, is through these little increments and it's through completing those pendulations. So I was like, okay, I'm going to track Brando's pendulations. I am going to work really small and I'm going to watch for his tendency to go into a shutdown. And sure enough, it was so fascinating to watch because I would, um, I, I I brought an object up to him, and like right away, like he can see his eyes like go glaze, you know. And I was like, "Oh, buddy, okay, we're starting really small with you." Um, and so I started doing what I think some clicker trainers would talk about, like a shaping plan. Now I didn't have any kind of training in that at the time. I knew about clicker training and positive reinforcement, but this is quite different. This is not so much about um, exposure, although somatic experiencing could be considered um, a gradual titrated exposure therapy. It's not, um, it's not flooding. It's not prolonged exposure. It's tiny little titrations of exposure, mm-hmm. waiting for the pendulation to complete, waiting for that activation to deactivate. And with Brando, it's that he goes into a bit of a stoic freeze. And so I was tracking his tendency to do that, but I was working at the edge of tolerance like, okay, that's too close. No problem. I'm going to back off. And so I would back off and I would wait for him to show up and, and breathe. You know, and and then it was like, okay, great, he breathed, awesome. And he, he came out of those freeze moments. And so progressively over time, just working with objects, working with things that I know would sort of make him feel scared. Um, you know, you're at the mounting uh the hitching post and you're grooming and something falls off in front of his nose, you know, like you drop a glove or something and he goes, Ah and it's like, okay, so let's let's work in small, gradual, titrated amounts where we're I'm helping him learn that his nervous system can go up and it will come down and it doesn't have to get stuck and freeze. Mm -hmm. Because the classic pattern of overwhelm is I got overwhelmed and I couldn't get through it. I got stuck in my experience. And so he is like a traumatized human being. I think he's had a lot of training experiences that were very overwhelming for him that resulted in him having to go into stoicness to, to cope. Um, and, to check and these out people
1: probably weren't abusive yeah. in any way. It's not like no, they were hitting gosh, him around the head or hitting him with an object. I they just did too much yeah. too fast. And his nervous system it was too much hope. It was just I, exactly. that simple.
0: That's exactly it. I don't think the trainer at all had any intention to harm Brando. I've since heard other stories about that particular person, but that's another aside. But I do not for an instant think that my horse was abused. I do believe though that like you said right he was overstimulated and overwhelmed and there was a lot of stimulus stacking mm. where his uh, it was more and more and more and more and he just got overwhelmed and learned how to become stoic and shut down and never really worked through all that charge in his nervous system and so uh i was like okay let's back way the heck off thanks anna blake for telling me about my horse being stoic and cueing me to the thing that was right in front of me all along um that as a trauma therapist you'd think i would have seen right and so like I said, make your mess your message. Um, yeah. so Brandon, became, you, if you right, don't
1: have the ex- personal oh. experience, you oh. can't be the expert. So thank you for bringing the expert, oh, yeah. to, you know,
0: the, the experience itself. Yeah, well, that's it. Like I figured, and this is what helps me sometimes with my imposter syndrome, because I go, oh, who am I? I haven't been in horses my whole life. I'm going to be 40, you know, who am I to talk about horses? Um, and it took me a really long time to to get over that and to to go you know what sarah maybe you didn't have horses since you were two um but there's still a lot of value in what you're bringing to the table in terms of taking this knowledge from this you know somatic experiencing world and polyvagal theory with stephen porges's work and attachment theory and going this absolutely applies to mammals and in fact each of those areas was studied in animals first Mm. Um, you know, and and then applied to humans, so it absolutely hundred percent has relevance. And I might not be a horse trainer, but I'm an expert in my own horse, and I'm continuing to learn from my horse, who is an expert in himself. Mm. Brando is his own expert, um, but he teaches me every day, and there's still a lot I need to learn. But there's a lot that I, I I've been applying, so I've been tracking these pendulations. And what was really fascinating with the the fear of objects for Brando was that um, because I was allowing that charge to rise and then fall and discharge before I did another stimulation, quote unquote, um, exposing him to something else, um, I found that he was less spooky and less fearful. Does he still have startled responses? Sure. He's a horse. He's Brando. I don't know that we'll ever fully get past that. He's a horse who tends to have a pretty decent um, self-protective mechanism now as a result of his early experiences. I don't think that'll completely go away. Um, Maybe in time it'll get better. But what I've noticed is that since paying attention to those pendulations and not doing stimulus stacking and continuing to overwhelm him, he's a lot more present. He doesn't check out as much. Um, When stuff happens around him, he's not really worried anymore. Um, you can you can sweep underneath him and he doesn't care that there's a broom underneath his feet. He doesn't care if something drops in front of him. He'll, he used to scare himself. He would, um, if there was something on the hitching post, like a bottle of Thrush Buster or something, he would knock it off with his nose and scare himself. Um, you know, because that's just how he is. He just became very spooky as a result of all this overwhelming training experience. Yeah. Um, but now he'll knock a thing off the hitching post and just sort of sniff it. You know, and, and I'm like, this is awesome. This is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, and, and part of somatic experiencing work is um, the trauma vortex is the scary thing, right? The trauma vortex is the traumatic memory. It's the bad experience. It's the object. It's the whatever, right? It's the thing that carries the charge. Mm -hmm. And Peter Levine talks about how you need a counter vortex in the face of the trauma vortex in order to have the capacity and the resiliency to feel like you've got the confidence to move towards the trauma vortex, right? Um, We need to feel resourced if we're going to go towards the center, right? The core of the issue. And so I started to do um, some minor positive reinforcement with him. So I started teaching him to touch it. Um, and touch it was a really fun little game. I don't even know where I learned that. I don't know if that's class. I don't know if that's like a typical thing that's taught. I think I might've just adapted something out of, you know, how there's target training Mm -hmm. for horses with the stick and you get the horse to touch the stick. And so I just kind of adapted that. And so I would point to something and I would say, touch it. And then when he would touch it with his nose, I would give him a treat or I would scratch his withers or something. And so, um, so he kind of learned that. Um, here's this thing that he does that brings him some confidence and that he knows he gets rewarded for and he feels good about. And in somatic experiencing, we're wanting to draw on resources if we're going to go towards something scary. So unbeknownst to me, but sort of by design, I helped him develop a resource, which is this touch it game that we have. Um, and so that has been super helpful also in terms of feeling the confidence to approach the scary thing. And in fact, the video series that um, Julie Lannan and I will be releasing very, very shortly um, shows exactly that. She did um, a model of training called Intrinsin which um, teaches horses things like panther walks and crunches and, and different sort of movements that the horse can feel proud about and feel a sense of like competence and confidence about. And invariably what we found in working with her horse is that those very proud like movements are a resource that helps the horse move towards something scary. And what was interesting was Julie was telling me, she said, Sarah, you know, there's, if there's a scary object, my horse will turn to me and he'll cue a panther walk. And, and I'm like, that's amazing, because that's the counter vortex in the face of the trauma vortex. That's exactly what we do in somatic experiencing is we, we find the resource that gives you a sense of a sense of the opposite of trauma, a sense of I can versus a sense of I can't, a sense of empowerment as opposed to a sense of defeat and overwhelm and helplessness. And that that boost in the nervous system is sometimes that little bit that you need to kind of get to that next threshold. Mm, it's brilliant. And,
1: and we, we talk yeah. in humans about resourcing as well. So for me personally, I would mm-hmm. um, I feel the energy of my parents standing behind me and the, the strength yeah. of them holding me up. Or I feel if I'm sitting in a chair, I feel the strength of the chair under me. Yes. And I lean That's back that strength and I feel it. Yes. You know, whatever it is, if it's a, a religion yeah. or um, for me, you know, you can think about the happy things from your childhood. You need to have about sure. two or three resources that we learn in counselling yeah. that we yeah. always just bring ourselves back to ourselves when we're feeling those ways. So if you see a horse going into it and you start to go, oh, what do I do here? You can mm-hmm. resource yourself, which, which might help the horse resource themselves as well.
0: Well, and see if the relationship with the handler is a resource. And so this is what's so amazing. So in attachment theory, um, we want to ideally raise our young or our animals with a safe haven experience where their needs are met and they're protected from harm and all these things. Um, and then if there's enough consistency of attunement, enough consistency of responsiveness, um, the child or the animal will, will return to the caregiver as a secure base exactly um, and they can right? do that if you've
1: resourced yourself well first you got
0: it if yeah. you're scary that's if you're
1: inconsistent yep. you, we you know, know what i mean resource right? ourselves and yes Allow the horse then to use
0: us as a resource too you got it that's mm-hmm. exactly it so all these things kind of came together for me and that's what i've been promoting so the trainings i've got coming up the workshops i've got coming up um that's it's essentially this in a nutshell it's how are we using this um The basics intensives, uh, the Equisoma Basics Intensives, are workshops intended specifically for people who are uh, in the equine assisted therapy field or in uh, somatic experiencing, or they're helping professionals of various kinds who want to learn a little bit more about the um, equine assisted therapy process, but from a perspective of somatic experiencing, polyvagal theory, attachment theory, uh, and trauma informed care. Uh, And so the first workshops are happening in 2019, so I'm very excited about that. Um, And then I've also been rolling out Trauma-Informed Horsemanship, which is an adaptation of the same material, but for non-therapists, basically it's for um, humans who love horses, humans who have horses, equestrians, horse trainers, horse horse health professionals, uh, and so on. And it's basically taking some of this knowledge and, and bringing it back around to those contexts. Mm, I love it. I love
1: that you're covering both sides of the field. And mm. something that comes to mind that um, everyone listening can actually do is you can, in becoming, because uh, sometimes you, you sit and listen to these things and you say, but, but what can I do now? And what you can yeah. do is, is become that expert on your horse's nervous system. So even yeah. when you first approach your horse, how does yeah. your horse look as you're approaching it? When your horse actually yeah. sees you, what's the response they have in their body? And then, totally. you know, if you're walking up with a halter, does the horse have a different mm. response? If you walk over mm. and you you pick something up like the bridle or the saddle, always mm-hmm. be watching your horse as you pick it up to see, do they have mm-hmm. an actual response in their nervous system to that? Are they trying to tell you something really early um, yeah. and uh, about that? today's not a good day. I don't have a good feeling about that saddle. I don't, I don't want to be ridden that bridle. I don't like it. What is it that your mm-hmm. horse is trying to tell you? And when is it that they, you see that first you know, shutdown response in them? It's, um, you can really become a master yeah. in your horse's nervous system.
0: Yes. And that attunement, that ability to read, the, the, the micro-tracking, of, you know, the, that, that subtlety, that's where the horse starts to go, oh, my human sees me.
1: Yeah, right. That's where because relationships built
0: and safety. Yeah, is. that's exactly it. Because if you if you're if you're a kid, right, and your parent uh, routinely reacts a particular way, misreads you, doesn't see that you're in distress, doesn't see that you're frustrated with their behavior, doesn't pick up on all these little things. As a kid, you learn to not trust your parent. As a kid, you learn, okay, well, my needs are not going to get met. I'm not understood. No one sees me, um, and it's A really magical experience when that kid grows up and has a first moment where someone actually sees their distress or sees those subtle cues or reads their body sign of no and goes, Oh, you saw that? Oh, you 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 actually can like you actually picked up on what was important for me or you actually could tell that I was upset about this. And and it's such a moment where you go, Oh, I can trust you because you see me. Mm. And and the horses are no different. They might not have language the way we do. But when Brando, when I figured myself out and I started applying some of this with Brando, um, he became, not that he wasn't responsive before and not that we had a poor relationship. I would go in the pasture and he would come from long distances to come and see me. Like we, we've always had a good relationship. Mm. Um, but, but there was something changed when I started to really apply my, what I knew about people to him and i was like and so he sees that i see him more now um he can tell that i'm noticing the moments where he he goes into stoicness and he 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 blanks out a little bit in his eye like he knows that i'm seeing some of those things now yeah um you can tell because he's much more connected Um, and we play, we've always played, you know, he's such a wonderful horse to do Liberty stuff with. And he's, he's just such a fun horse. You get him in the arena and you run around and he's, he joins up and he plays and tosses his head and wants to run with you. And he's just such a, a jovial, a jovial soul. But that, that has gotten so much more fun because I'm able to attend to him more, more specifically. Um, and when that attunement's there, it's like, oh, that's like you said, that's where, that's where the relationship is built yeah it's like oh i i'm seen i'm safe they they see it they get it they're uh, they're attending to you know they're attending to my response Mm -hmm. and i have a voice and that takes me to this idea of trauma-informed care which is you know one can we have a trauma lens on our animals so like you said what can listeners do that's practical one like you said become an expert on your horse's nervous system Two, become an expert on your own nervous system yeah right Track your response, track their response. notice how your response leads to their response. Notice how their response leads to your response. Notice mm-hmm. how you ping off of each other. To quote one of my favorite teachers, Kathy Kane, um, who uses that terminology, and I think it 's just so brilliant. Um, you know you will ping off of each other mm-hmm. right you, your reactions will react off of each other. so notice how that happens right and like invariably often my my animals often end up um, having similar, even oddly enough, similar health issues to me. Um, and th- this is one of the, these great, um, teachings that I've had from the animals is just how somatically attuned they are to the humans around them. It, when I had my dog before she passed away four or five years ago, um, my dog Sally, she had a number of health issues. Um, one of which was a vestibular disorder. So she started having what looked like seizures. Um, her eyes would track as if she was on a tilt-a-whirl. And even though she was standing still, it looked like she was spinning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had these, these issues. And I started, I was going through a period in my life where I was feeling very um, unstable, very destabilized. A lot of stuff was going on. I felt very unbalanced. And sure enough, my dog winds up with a balance disorder, right? Um, similar thing happened with my horse the other month or two ago Brando um, I had been going through a very busy time a lot of stressors were kind of manifesting around the same time and I was frustrated and had gone through a bit of a whirlwind with a couple of things I went to the farm I felt quiet I felt calm um, but earlier that day I was really stressed out and Brando did the weirdest thing he cocked his head turned his head sideways faced me and walked in a circle around me as if I was the center of a spoke uh, of a wheel And and I was like what the heck and I thought maybe well, you know Maybe he's got something in his ear or maybe it's the high winds and and it was a colleague of mine who suggested You know, I wonder if your horse is actually picking up on your energy and I know that sounds woo-woo to some people But I was like, you know what if he's anything like my dog, Sally I would not put it past him because she developed a balance disorder right when my life became the most unbalanced and I was having a pretty unbalanced day even though I felt calmer getting to the farm, um, I was in a bit of a whirlwind and he spun in a circle around me in a really bizarre way and he's never done it since. Yeah. You know, and I go, you know what? No, it really is. They, they really do respond off of us. Um, and, and also it is,
1: they try and tell us that they yeah. see us. They're giving mm-hmm. us what they want us to give them. So they're saying, yeah. I see you. I see this yeah. is happening for you. Yeah. and uh, if we don't understand that we can punish them for it we can bring them out of it they're saying yeah. you know he's saying i see you i see you're in a whirlwind and i'm here
0: yeah i had my um my partner had a he had had a first panic attack last year it was interesting and he never had one since but he had he had this one panic attack out of the blue not out of the blue probably there was a lot of stressors you know as we know panic attacks don't necessarily just come out of the blue but it mm-hmm. felt like it came out of the blue for him Um, and that very day we went to the farm and we have a mare named Ruby. And, uh, I've mostly talked about Brando today, but, um, we do have this beautiful mare. And, uh, for the first time ever, she had a panic attack. It was the weirdest thing. She is a pretty laid back horse. Nothing bothers her. She's not at all scared of objects. She's kind of Brando's opposite in some ways. Um, and, she had the biggest response I've ever seen, and it seemed to come out of complete nowhere. And Ryan was like, what the heck? Like, what's going on with her now? We don't punish our horses because we recognize they're responding off of things, of course. So we have that lens. Um, but I was like, you know, sweetheart, I, I think, you know, not, you, this might sound a little far-fetched, but I said, this is, she's never reacted like that ever, and you've never had a panic attack and both occurred on the same day. Mm. You know, and they've never had, either of them have had that since. And so I kind of go, you know what? No, we do need to be looking at ourselves. And one thing um, I'm preparing a presentation on, we talk about this idea of co-regulation, right? And healing with horses. And it's one of these little beefs that I have, you know, we talk about the field and, oh, be around animals and animals are regulating and we can regulate with an animal and they can sense that we're, you know, they can sense stuff. I, I do believe that they can. But I also want to make sure that we're not falling into what some of my colleagues call magic unicorn syndrome. Yeah. Um, You know, where we were attributing almost magical qualities to the horses, and that, you know, we're going to be with horses and they're going to magically regulate us and they're going to magically discharge our energy for us. And without us having uh, to do a single thing. Totally, right? And that they're going to choose to be with us when we're dysregulated. I'm sorry, I don't know what your horses have been smoking, but my horse, when I'm dysregulated, doesn't stick around. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I think there's unfortunately like not that not to say that it can't happen and that some horses won't Be with a human when they're going through a lot of emotion Which is again the foundation of equine assistive assisted therapy is these magical moments where like even I had that where I was Crying and I was upset and I'm in this round pen and Hawk comes up behind me and walks with me like wow You know, there's these moments where these things happen. Absolutely But if we have this expectation that our horses are going to regulate us, right? It sets people up for, I think, a lot of um, misperception, false expectations, um, and and sometimes potentially even exploitation or abuse. Because um, if you have a, an animal and you have somebody like yourself, a horse owner, or someone coming out as a client, uh, and they're having a hard time, and they've been given this song and dance about equine-assisted therapy. You know, you go with the horses and they have unconditional love and they're going to be with you and your emotion and they don't judge. And that stuff's all true to a certain degree. But if you've got someone who's got this expectation and they get there and they have a big emotional response and the horse moves away because the horse is uncomfortable, because it's a lot of emoting and they've got their own stuff and the horse is not comfortable, we've just created a pretty big reenactment of the human feeling dropped yeah and you know what i mean and going see i'm you know my needs are too much and no one can be with me and you know even the horses are abandoning me and yes that's grist for the mill but we can avoid that by avoiding unnecessary expectations up front that are unrealistic By again making the horses into these magic unicorns that they're going to come and therapeutically heal everybody you know i don't think that's fair and And it's not much self-responsibility in there mm -hmm. either is there No. And I, and I, you know, do, do horses have the capacity to be a regulating impact? Sure. We've all sat in fields. We've all been around horses and felt super calm and felt like in our bodies. And I, I, that's absolutely true. But it's, it's, I think it's the whole extremes, right? Like you can have that, you know? And then, and not go into the extreme of magic unicorns, right? Where they, you know, they're gonna come and they're gonna release my energy for me. I think that can happen sometimes, you know, when you're around horses and they start licking and chewing because you're calmer or Mm. you're coming down off of a stress and they start licking and chewing. But I go, is that them discharging your energy or is that actually them feeling your stress and their nervous system is coming down? Yeah. Right. It's them discharging perhaps their energy in response to yours, not that they're discharging yours necessarily. Yeah. Right. Like we, we, I think we come up with these fanciful explanations, which contributes to, you know, magic unicorn syndrome. And then we've got, you know, um, some expectations that are not always true, uh, such as making a horse stand and tolerate an interaction when they don't want to be, you know, we've all, I think, seen that. I remember seeing a video, there's a couple of videos on the internet, of, um, different therapeutic intervention programs involving horses where the horses are clearly not happy to be in those interventions. You know, their, their, their ears are pinned and they're tuning out and the handlers are trying to make them tolerate the experience. And I'm like, that's, that's not okay. You know, if it comes at the expense of the horse, it's not healing for either horse or human. Like it sh- it can't, it can't come at the expense of the animal, which means again, we have to be looking at ourselves in that equation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah.
1: Oh, there's so many good things in there. So Sarah, tell me about where yeah. we can find all the information we need on you.
0: Sure. Um, so I have a couple of websites. Um, the more horse-related one is uh, www.equasoma.com. So e-q-u-u-s-o-m-a, uh, equus and soma. So equus being horse and soma being body, um, but one s. So. Uh, the two words are kind of collapsed together. So equisoma.com with one s, mm-hmm. um, and then the other one is my first and last name at um, or that's <laughs> that's a that's a Gmail address. Um, my first and last name.com. So sarahschlody.com. S-A-R-A-H-S-C-H-L-O-T as in Tom E.com, um, and both of those websites will have information. Um, I've a number of books or, or publications in the process, uh, some videos, some podcast stuff. There's a lot of really cool material. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. And there, you're also so.
0: on social media. What? what yeah. Social? I'll have all the
1: links in the show notes. But tell Fabulous. us where we can find you as well.
0: Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm never, I never go into LinkedIn. So if you find me and add me as a friend request, I will do my best to log in and add you, but I really don't post much there. I've been advised to be more active on LinkedIn, but I just, I'm not. Um, I'm very, very active on Facebook. I have a professional Facebook account. Um, Sarah Schlody, if you look me up, you'll find me pretty quickly. I'm, there's very few of us by that name on the planet. I believe the other Sarah Schloty happens to live in Germany. She's probably distantly related on some level Mm. Um, and doesn't pronounce it Schloty. She probably pronounces it the proper way, Uh, pronounces it Schlota. But um, um, if you check me out on Facebook, you'll find me. I also have a page, a Facebook page for Equasoma as well. So if you look up E-Q-U-U-S-O-M-A, you'll find that page as well fantastic and your website's the best place to find
1: out where you to where and when you're touring in australia where you're going to be in yeah. those times that's the best yes yeah.
0: Yeah, that's all on the website. It's also on the uh, Facebook page for the business. Um, All that information is there, but definitely the website is a good place to go. Oh, and I was going to suggest this: if you go to equasoma.com on the homepage, there's a sign-up box for your email. And of course, you know when you sign up for your email, because you'll be signing up for my newsletter, you can absolutely opt out if you wish. Um, But if you want, I'm giving away a free ebook, which is uh, mostly for people who are doing uh, trauma, um, sorry, um, equine assisted interventions of some kind. So therapeutic writing, equine assisted therapy, equine assisted learning and so on. Aquine assisted yoga, you know, whatever. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, but it's having, it's basically a trauma informed assessment checklist. So, um, if you have any kind of horse human interaction program, uh, it's a 30 page checklist where you can go through and, and compare and, and look at how you can be more trauma informed as a program, looking at the horse's needs, the client's needs, the team members needs, um, and just having that trauma lens. Oh, so, fantastic. um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a decent resource. It's not intended to be completed in its entirety. I don't think any one program could possibly complete all of those items, but it's a really good overview of things that people could implement in their programs to make their program, program more trauma informed. Mm,
1: it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today oh, wow. on the show. Thanks.
0: But mostly,
1: thank you so much for what you're doing with horses. It's extraordinary what you're doing. And the more I get into this podcast, the more people that I meet, the more people that I talk to, and the deeper we go. trauma is just something we're all going to have to deal with and be aware of. And yeah, it's so brilliant that you're bringing these things out. And we will absolutely, um, I will let everyone know when you've launched as well, the one for for regular horse people because I think that's something that everyone can get something really um really important information that we can take on and understand our horses better and build relationship and connection because that's what all of us want is the same thing and this is another amazing tool to help us get there so that's coming out
0: family. i actually i am offering that one three times this year so if any regular ho- regular quote-unquote horse people As are wanting
1: non-therapist horse people non-therapist working in equine assisted therapy that's but right. actually just that's regular right. old good old horse riding people like most of us are
0: that's right and so those are the the trauma-informed horsemanship workshops they're two-day workshops it's an introduction to this great topic that we've been talking about today Uh, and things that people can do to look at themselves, work on their own experiences, look at how they've trauma bonded with their horses because trauma bonding relationships are totally a thing between humans and we do that with our horses as well. Looking at tracking nervous systems, looking at um, tracking co dysregulation, looking at co-regulation, looking at attunement, looking at some of these principles from somatic experiencing but for horse people. So um, there's a two day in Australia at the end of the other training that I'm offering, a two day in France and a two day in um uh, toronto that's happening later in november so uh we've
1: got a few of those that are coming up as well fantastic and you can go to the links in the show notes and all the ones the um website that sarah spoke of before to find that but for now sarah thank you so much for everything that you do and thanks for your time today thanks so much for your time tracy take good care to connect with sarah go to the show notes and follow the links I'm on a mission to create a community of gentle and ethical horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please engage with me somehow. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook, share or comment on social media posts or tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who'd love to listen but isn't quite sure how. I'd also love it, really love it, if you get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you'd like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine. So please, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover, if there's something you'd like me to research more and really speak about at length or even just in a short way, let me know. I'd love, love, love to serve you guys more. Anyway, thanks again
0: for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.